Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. A nation that's been battered by a national crisis. Americans struggling to make ends meet. Political tensions are sky high. Many people want things to go back to normal, and others are ready to embrace a new and more equitable American paradigm. Sound familiar? In this moment of life amid a pandemic calls for an end to police brutality and systemic racism and ever-mounting political tensions, our next guest says it should be somewhat familiar. We've been here before. Well, not us literally, but our country found itself in a similar position about 150 years ago. Adam Serwer is a staff writer with The Atlantic, and he recently wrote a piece that takes a critical look at what we could learn today from looking back to the post-Civil War reconstruction period. Adam Serwer, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I want to start here. You write that, quote, the best analog to the current moment is the first and most consequential such awakening in 1868. The story of that awakening offers a guide and a warning. I want to start there because I think a lot of people have been looking at what's going on right now and pointing to parallels with 1968 as the era when riots and rebellion swept through the nation and the call for a more just paradigm really reached a fever pitch. You say we've got to go back a hundred years further than that. Why is that so? Well, there's a number of reasons. I mean, one is that the 1968 comparison doesn't really work because Nixon, when he was running as the law and order candidate, he was triangulating. He was positioning himself between what he saw as the permissiveness of liberal Democrats like Hubert Humphrey and the lawlessness of white supremacists like George Wallace. Uh, Trump's rhetoric and ideology is far closer to Wallace than Nixon, Mm -hmm. or at least as far as Nixon was publicly presenting himself. Um, And also, he's the incumbent. Nixon was running against the incumbent party, uh, the Democrats. So it, it doesn't really make sense as an analogy. The other part is that the protests in, in 1968 and 1967, uh, there was just a lot more violence and destruction than you're seeing today. Today, there's a way in which, uh, you know, social media can amplify uh, certain incidents. But the truth is, is that there's nowhere near as many people dying and there's nowhere nowhere near as, as much property destruction. And the protests are uh, all, all, all overwhelmingly peaceful by comparison. Mm-hmm. But the, the, where the 1868 um analogy becomes valuable is in a couple reasons. One is that, you know, I don't, uh, you know, people in 1868 weren't really, people in 1866 at the end of the Civil War, they weren't really interested in pursuing a uh, broad program of racial justice. Um, They sort of just wanted to get on with their lives and, you know, get back to business after the end of the Civil War. There had already been so much death and destruction uh, that people didn't want to, you know, rock the boat, really. But what happened was that the, um, the the president at the time, Andrew Johnson, who had taken office after Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated, uh, had basically decided that he was going to let the South reconstruct itself um, and impose tyrannical terms on the emancipated. And he himself was someone who is a believer in white man's government. He, he, he you know, 
to uh, he in an echo of the current president's remarks about quote unquote asshole countries. Mm. Um, you know, he argued that you couldn't let, give black people political rights because every place in the world where black people were in charge uh, it, it w- w- was not a good country. So. Um, what happened was that between the uh, racist demagogue in the White House and the uh, news that people were hearing about violence and oppression in the South of the Freedmen, uh, a lot of white people in the North really woke up to the reality of racism in American life and committed to doing something about it. And the reason I call this the most consequential such awakening is that, you know, at, at the time they, they wrote the equality of man into the Constitution. And, and, and when I say that, um, I say man because, you know, the, 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 the political rights of women were not included in right. the 13th and 14th Amendment. That would have to wait. And then the rights of black, the political rights of black women w- would, of course, have to wait until 1965, which was, you know, in a period of another such awakening almost 100 years later. Yeah. So these moments when, when, when much of the country awakens to the reality of racism and how it shapes the lives of people who are not white are few and far between and great things. Uh, can be done to make the country a more equitable place. But what almost always happens after that is there's some sort of backlash and people say, well, this isn't really worth it. And they give up. And and, and sometimes there's even backsliding. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I mean, the Reconstruction is, of course, now thought of largely as uh, a colossal failure. And it, it results in almost 100 years of uh, of Jim Crow, which which is not just backlash, but I mean, you know, really institutional, uh, very strong pushback against the idea of equality. But there are some things that come out of the Reconstruction era that really matter and really matter today. I mean, the amendments themselves uh, are are the bedrock for. Uh, the later legislation, of course, that that animates them in in our democracy. I, I wonder if you can talk about what you think the opportunities are now to do better than we did in 1868. To not have uh, the the uh, the attention on inequality sort of court this idea that uh, that that people have to crack down and and push back. I mean, that certainly is what the president is leaning into. Uh, and, and I think that the comparison to George Wallace uh, and, and his campaign is really apt right now. Uh, how do we stop a repeat of 1868 through the vehicle of a president who reminds us uh, of, of George Wallace from 1968? Well, so I think, you know, to the extent that uh, you know, defeating Donald Trump is probably a necessary but not sufficient condition for pursuing an agenda of racial equality, because racial equality is simply not something the president believes in. I mean, there's a reason why he's telling people that Cory Booker is going to move poor minorities into your suburban neighborhood. <laughs> right. Um, you know, but the truth is, is that, uh, you know, even at the time, Republicans were, were the radical Republicans were reluctant or the, the Republican Party, the radical Republicans wanted to pursue a broader agenda, but the rest of the Republican Party was really apprehensive about engaging in anything that might be seen as redistribution of property or income. And, and the truth is that Americans have often been very, um, you know, supportive of civic equality, but they've been less supportive of uh, the economic remedies that would actually, uh, you know, make the country more equal. And I think that that's probably also true of the Democrats. It, it, you know, uh, Joe Biden has talked about 
he's 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 gone back and saying he's drawing inspiration from the from the era of reconstruction and in, in the 1860s and also the civil rights era in the 1960s um but you know he's he, his record is is largely that of a moderate liberal um and in historically even uh, you know, liberal, even the legislators of, of, of his kind have been reluctant to pursue truly transformative uh, economic policies that would actually, uh, you know, close the racial wealth gap that exists in the United States as a result of policy, not as a result of individual personal behavior. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, it, it's, I think it's pretty clear that Donald Trump is not going to pursue that. Um, it, it, it's not clear that Joe Biden would either. Um, but it's probably a, a necessary but not sufficient condition for Trump not to be the president for something mm. like that to happen. Mm. Uh, I, I also want to get you to talk about uh, the way that the collective awakening today lines up with what we saw back in 1955 with Emmett Till and the public outcry that came in 2013 with the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's killer. There are so many echoes to what we're dealing with now uh, in, in our history, it's not just it's not just Reconstruction, uh, civil rights. The early days of the civil rights movement also are are calling to us today. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, this this problem with Black Americans and police is is something that is you know uh, uh, at least 150 years old. I mean, when you go back to the 1860s, um, you have Union soldiers who are writing, who are in the South, who are stationed in the South, who are writing dispatches to their generals talking about how lawless the police are and the way that they behave with black people. I mean, when you look at the 1960s, uh, you know, it, it's, it's generally like forgotten the extent to which, um, you know, it, it, these protests were organized around instances of police brutality. The, the, the killing of Emmett Till, which was, you know, uh, which was the murder of, a black teenager who supposedly whistled at a black woman in the South was the catalyst um, for the modern civil rights movement or is considered the catalyst, uh, catalyzing event for the modern civil rights movement. There's a long history of either uh, police or extrajudicial violence against black Americans becoming an inspiration for political activism. Mm. And, you know, even you go back and you, you know, you think about John Lewis who, who, who recently passed away and, and, and when he was beaten on the, the Edmund Pettus bridge by Alabama state troopers, I mean, even that protest was linked uh, to uh, an incident of police brutality that had occurred, uh, uh, you know, recently. So this is a really, this is actually something that is people sort of think of the, uh, of, of the, of, civil rights activism focused on uh, police discrimination is something relatively recent, but it's actually something very old, mm. which helps to explain why some um, activists who work around police brutality have, have come up with so many, um, you know, radical solutions to the problem. Yeah. yeah. I'm talking with uh, Adam Serwer, a staff writer at The Atlantic, recently wrote a really thoughtful piece for the publication's October issue titled The New Reconstruction. The United States has its best opportunity in 150 years to belatedly fulfill its promise as a multiracial democracy. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. What do the protests 
that we're seeing with regard to Black Lives Matter remind you of from our past? Do they remind you of the 1960s? Uh, Do they remind you of what you've read about reconstruction in this country 100 years before the civil rights protests? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Adam, I want to get you to talk a little about the role of white America uh, and white Americans in in both of these in both of these eras. Uh, something like 23 million people uh, have been said to participate in the Black Lives Matter uh, Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, I, I read an article recently that said it's more people than any social movement. Uh, in the country's history, which is really amazing to to, to even think about, um, <clears throat> but uh, w- what that implies and what it what it says almost explicitly is that this is a multiracial movement. This is not just African Americans saying that things need to be different or pushing for our rights. This has been this has been joined uh, by by people across the the, the, the demographic uh, spectrum. Uh, that's different than past eras, in at least to the extent that that's true. Um, compare the role that white Americans seem prepared to play today to the role that they played uh, during Reconstruction. Well, I think, you know, I think it's, it's important to remember, even, even some of the most um, progressive, radical Republicans, when they talked about racial equality, they, they, they didn't they didn't talk. They, they they separated what they called uh, social equality from political equality. Mm-hmm. So political mm-hmm. equality meant that black black men would have the same rights as white men, but social equality was seen as something of an anathema. You know, but, but, but having to socialize with black people, uh, you know, the intermarriage stuff like that. So they were, you know, when we think about the comparison between the 1860s and today, one thing that's very different today is is the reality is that. White Americans are far more progressive on on racial matters than they were in the past. Not everybody, but 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 overall, certainly the case. Mm-hmm. Um, the the I think the issue historically has been, um, you know, what I describe, what I talk about in the piece. This is a, a social science term called the principal implementation gap, and what that refers to is the fact that white Americans will profess a commitment to racial equality in principle, but they'll oppose any uh, policies that would actually implement uh, racial equality. And I think, you know, it, it, we sort of have to wait to see what happens. Obviously, you, you know, I, I'm not I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to make any predictions about what happens in November. But I think it's it's you know, it, 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 there's a possibility we have a we have Donald Trump as president and there's a possibility we have Joe Biden as president. But regardless of what happens, you know, the 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 professed belief in racial equality does not always translate into um, support for policies that would actually establish racial equality. And that's something that I think, you know, we're, we're, it, it's, it's hard to know how that's actually going to pan out in practice, hmm. um, despite the fact that there has been undeniably a great awakening about the principle itself. Yeah. Uh, do you feel as though white Americans understand better now the role that they play even complicitly uh, in in maintaining structures of institutional racism and, and are more prepared 
to have their lives change because of the change that's needed than, than they were in the 60s or in the 1860s? So what I try to emphasize is this is not, you know, racism is more than just a personal failure. Obviously, there's a, some there's a personal bigotry exists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the issue here is that American institutions have really been constructed in a way um, to disadvantage black people and, and, and other people of color. And the issue is changing those institutions so that they don't do that and, 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 and elevating people who had previously uh, been denied basic um, civic or economic rights on, on, on the basis of those discriminatory institutions. So it's less about, you know, it, you know, am I individually a good person and sure. more about the, the institutions that make up our country. Um, as far, you know, I, I, I'm less concerned or I think, you know, less, of, it's, it's less of an issue whether or not White Americans are doing some individual thing, you know, you know, posting black boxes on their Instagram captions or, <laughs> or using the right social justice lingo or whatever. I don't think that matters as much as, as, as uh, having a political commitment um, to rectifying these problems. Yeah. yeah. OK, Adam Serwer, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of a piece that's in the publication's October issue titled The New Reconstruction, the United States has its best opportunity in 150 years to belatedly fulfill its promise as a multiracial democracy. Always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thanks very much for coming by. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to raise a little more money, and then we're going to talk about inclusion and diversity at the Detroit Institute of Arts with the museum's director, Salvador Salor Pons. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today. 